Well, it's great for me, a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. <clears throat> Thank you for the warm welcome. For those who are new to First Free, maybe watching online, I need to introduce myself. My name is Pastor Bill. I served here for about 12 years on the pastoral staff, and four years ago on Easter, made the transition to a, a different ministry, training pastors and church leaders in other places around the world, and how to lead like Jesus. So uh, it's great to be back with our First Free family. I can sort of see most of you, many of you are in the same places you were four years ago on Easter. So that makes it easier as well. Well, I know it has been a tough year. It has been a tough year for so many people around the world. I could tell you story after story of brothers and sisters in Christ and other places who are struggling just as people here are in this area of St. Louis. And it's not just about the pandemic. It's the struggles that come with sustaining our spiritual growth when we can't really be around other brothers and sisters in Christ the way that we're used to and the way that we need to. It's partly about the challenge that we see in our culture and our country as the historic role of Christianity has corroded and eroded in many different ways that's been discouraging to a lot of people. And it's been a tough time for leaders. Leaders in the church have faced decisions that they never thought they would have to make. And they never had training to make. And when they make the decisions, there have been strong views on both sides of the decisions. And there's been pushback. So it's been a very discouraging time. And that's why the parables that we're covering today, I think, are so valuable. Because these are parables that are meant to encourage us about the kingdom of God. They're very timely in that sense. And to gain the full benefit of these parables, what I want to do today is to look at them from three angles. They're, they're complementary angles, if I could use a geometry term. But the first angle is what did these parables sound like for the first people? We need to experience the impact that these stories had on the first people who heard them. And Jesus told these two stories to teach the people around him about the kingdom of heaven. And I don't want you to turn to your Bibles yet. I want you to experience these stories the way those people would have by hearing them. And as you hear these stories, I want you to identify what's the point what is Jesus trying to teach the people who are listening to him about the kingdom of heaven? Here they are. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it's about 50 pounds worth of dough, it permeated every part of the dough. And you'd say at one level, those are pretty simple. And the point is pretty clear, isn't it? The kingdom starts as something very small, and it expands into something big. It has a transforming power and presence to it. And you might think, yeah, we got that, Bill. It is pretty clear. So 
maybe we have just experienced perhaps the shortest message in the history of First Free? And the answer is no, sorry. That's why we need to explore this from these three different angles. So just turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, continues through verse 33, very short section of the Bible. But I want you to listen to this with new ears. Try to understand and think about how did this sound to the people who first heard it? And we'll start with the opening phrase. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? Really? So what's a mustard seed look like? I didn't know. So I looked up a picture. Uh, Here is someone who has dozens of mustard seeds in the palm of their hand. I mean, they look sort of like poppy seeds, but they're way, way, way smaller than that. In fact, they were a proverbial source of comparison in Jesus' day for something that was very tiny, very hard to see, easy to overlook. So let me ask the question, how could God's kingdom ever be small? This is God's kingdom, right? He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the sovereign ruler over all things. When is God's kingdom ever small? And you might be thinking, yeah, I'm starting to see your point. What image would the people in Jesus' day have used to describe the kingdom of God before they heard this parable? So when you start reading Jewish literature, the Old Testament, the Bible, let me read for you one of the descriptions that describes a great earthly kingdom as a baseline for understanding the kind of image they might have expected. This is from Daniel chapter 4. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I guess I would have expected that for the Jewish people, they would have conceived of God's kingdom as something far greater than that, because that's a description of an earthly kingdom. And yet Jesus says it's like a mustard seed planted in a field. Yet Jesus does this with parables. He kind of catches us off guard because there are things that we have assumed that are wrong that need to be corrected. And a parable is a way of testing whether we are really listening, spiritually sensitive, and whether we're willing to learn from him, to pursue it, to, to find out more about what he's saying. So what was Jesus trying to impart to the first people who heard these parables? Well, I think he's trying to correct their understanding of the unfolding of God's kingdom within human history. Many of the Jewish people, and you can do the research on this, were expecting this instantaneous universal upheaval and the establishing of a new order 
under a political kind of leader, a military power. But it wasn't going to work like that. And if you looked at Jesus' life, you could tell that. I mean, think of what we're celebrating today on the Christian calendar. We're celebrating Palm Sunday. How did the king look on that Sunday? He's riding in on a donkey, right? Why not a war horse? Better yet, a chariot. Isn't that what real kingdoms are about? And yeah, there's a crowd and his followers are there. They're laying down the equivalent of a red carpet with their clothing, with their palm branches. They're waving them around. Where are the weapons? Where are the swords and shields and spears that real kingdoms are about? Now, this is going to be a different kind of kingdom. As it begins, it's going to be very small and it's going to be very humble. And if you think five days after that, what it looked like when Jesus refused to offer any defense when he was put on trial, when he failed to react when he was mistreated and mocked and beaten, when he hung in utter shame on the cross between two criminals. I mean, this was the man who claimed, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Boy, that seed looks like it's dead. But that's what Jesus said would happen in another parable. The last week of his life, this is what he said to those who had ears to hear. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. That's why it helps us to look at the, the parables from the perspective of those who first heard them. See, they had expectations of God's kingdom. And you know what? You and I have expectations too. And do our expectations line up or not with what Jesus tells us about the kingdom in his parables? Here he says it's going to begin very small and it's going to grow. Which then leads us to the second angle. And the second angle has to do with how these stories were retold in written form later on by his followers. Because we have four different books that have been written by those who knew him or knew about him and had done their work. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they gathered these stories together, including some of these parables that we're looking at. Now, of these two parables we're looking at today, they don't appear in one of the four books that were written one of the four Gospels. And the place that they appear in the other three is not identical. In fact, some of them don't quote both of these stories. And you might wonder, well, you know, what's going on with that? Well, that's the second angle we need to explore. We need to understand Matthew's Gospel. That's where I was reading from. We need to experience the impact that Matthew wanted his readers to have from these stories that Jesus told. He wrote about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus continued to be a very controversial figure as he was when he was ministering and Matthew was following him as a disciple. And the problems continued to build. So he, like the other gospel writers, he made choices about what he included, about the order in which he put them. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Well, let me give you an example that might help you understand how this would work. In the family I grew up in, there were four children, three boys and one girl. Let's suppose my three brothers or my two brothers and I decided to write biographies about my sister. And I could give you some idea of how our biographies might differ. My older brother, he is a doctor. And he might be interested in writing to a medical audience. And so he could write about my sister's career as a nurse. My younger brother, who works in business, he might be interested in targeting a business community or people who are interested in looking at intentional choices. And he could describe the choices my sister made, the career choices, the financial choices, the location of uh, where they lived choices, and explain why she did those things and how they furthered her purpose in life. As a pastor or missionary, I might write about my sister from the perspective of a Christian audience because she was also a pastor's wife. And so I might write about her ministry in the church, her ministry in the community, her ministry as a mother to their children in their home. All three of us know her really well. All three of us want our audience to understand her, but we want it to be relatable to them where they are. And so we might choose some of the same stories and omit other ones that are in the other books. That's what's going on here. So how do we figure out what Matthew was doing with these stories? Well, let's try to understand his audience a little bit. And again, you might say, well, how do we do that? Well, there are people who are better at this than I think we are. But they'd say, take a look at Matthew's gospel. When he uses Jewish background words, he doesn't translate them for his readers like the other Gospels do. When he talks about Jewish customs and practices, he doesn't explain why they are done like the other Gospels do. So when you begin to see how Matthew sets things up compared to others, you begin to get the feel he's actually writing to a Jewish audience. He assumed that they understood these things. They didn't need the explanation. And that helps us when we start looking at his message. Because just as Jesus was controversial when Jesus was on this earth, he was controversial after he rose from the dead and ascended to his father. And that problem has continued there's a spectrum within the Jewish community. There are those who are followers and those who are resistors. And Matthew wants to write to both groups. He wants to set the record straight for those who are fans and those who are foes of Jesus. See, it was a challenging time for the believers in Jesus when Matthew wrote this. And we know this because of letters that are written in the New Testament. The letter to the Hebrews, for example. It tells us that Jewish Christians had suffered imprisonment because of their faith in Jesus. It tells us that they had had their property confiscated. It tells us that they had experienced rejection and opposition. Matthew wanted his audience, 
his fellow Jews to know the truth about Jesus. He wanted them to have the opportunity, no matter where they were on this spectrum, to become followers of his. So he's trying to encourage his fellow believers. He's trying to invite those who are opponents. And so let's take a look at Matthew 13 and see if we can figure out how Matthew might have been using these parables for the benefit of those who are reading his message about Jesus. So it's a chapter filled with parables. They tend to come in pairs. I'll point that out as we go through this. But let's take the first pair. The parable of the soils. Jesus talks about a farmer, four kinds of places where his seed is falling as he's throwing it out. And as he describes what this means, he points out that three of the four responses, three of the four soils do not really gain the benefit of the seed. Again, that's a shock. Wouldn't the Jewish people have been eager and excited to hear from the Messiah? Wouldn't they have bought in very early? And he's saying, you know what? It's not going to be that way. That's not how it's going to unfold. That may be what your expectation is, but your expectation is wrong. And then he goes on to a second related parable. It's a parable about a farmer who sows good seed in his field, wheat seed. But that night, an enemy comes and also throws seed out into the field. And it's weed seed. It's a kind of weed that looks like wheat until it begins to mature. And in that parable, his servants, as they watch the crop grow, they realize, look, look what happened, master. Should we go and pull up the weeds? And he says, no, no, just leave it till the end. We'll separate them out at the end. We'll gather the weed into the barn. We'll put the weeds in bundles and we'll burn them. So how might those two parables have sounded to those who are on the unbelieving end of the spectrum? I think what they could do in God's grace is awaken someone to the idea that maybe they made a wrong choice in their response to Jesus. They can make a different choice if they want. And to those who are believers, it's a way of reassuring them. You know what you're experiencing from your family, from your friends, from your neighbors, from the people you knew in your synagogue. Don't be surprised by this. This is something that Jesus said would happen. In fact, he experienced it himself. So can you see why Matthew would pick these two parables? Put them in this chapter of parables about the kingdom? He's helping people understand how it's going to operate. Then the next pair of parables are the ones that we uh, are looking at today. The parable of the mustard seed that grows into this tree. It's the parable of the, the yeast that the woman works into the large measure of dough and it transforms the whole dough. How would that sound to people who are on the unbelieving end of the spectrum? Well, it'd be like a cold bucket of water in your face if you came to realize, I have been resisting God's kingdom. 
Here I thought I had God's favor as a Jewish person. I've got this wonderful heritage. I've got the law of God. And yet God has sent his Messiah and I've been opposing him? Oh my goodness. And to those who are on the believing end of the spectrum, it would be like this reminder of how God is at work. It's like warm water washing over them, reassuring them, restoring them. God is building his kingdom. Jesus is building his church. We can know it. And then the next two parables also speak with a common message. Kind of amazing short parables. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. A man goes, he finds it. And when he finds it, he sells all that he has so that he can buy the field, make the deal of a lifetime. It's like a, a pearl merchant looking for pearls and he finds one like he has never seen in his entire career. And so he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that precious pearl and makes the deal of a lifetime. How would that sound to these believers who have been put in prison, who have had their property taken away, who've experienced rejection and persecution? And you can see how it would encourage them. You've made the right choice. You've chosen something that can never be taken from you. To embrace this kingdom is worth everything we have. I mean, it makes me think of what Paul, the leader in the Gentile movement in the church, wrote. I mean, he experienced tremendous opposition, both from the Gentiles and the Jews. This is what he wrote, because he saw this dynamic at work in the building of God's kingdom. He said, and as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving, and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. I wish we had time to go into what he called small troubles. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And then it ends with a final parable. A parable about a fishing net that's pulled up out of the water. It's filled with different fish. The fishermen start sorting them. The good from the bad. The good from the bad. He says that's how it's going to be at the end. There will be a separation. Depends on what kingdom you're in. Depends on how you've responded to the seed that has been sown. The treasure that's been offered. Can you see now why Matthew would include this set of parables for the people who will read about the teaching that Jesus gave about the kingdom? It addresses everybody that he's trying to encourage or to draw into the kingdom. Which in a sense leads us to the third angle. And that angle is, how do we apply it today? 
We need to experience the impact these parables can have on us. And in some ways, culturally, we're moving more and more in the direction of what the original readers who were believers were experiencing because of their faith. The gospel has its fans and it has its detractors. Jesus has those who appreciate him and those who don't want him anywhere near. And it's becoming more pronounced. So I think it, it speaks to us today. And yet, like Matthew, we want not just to encourage the people who have trusted Jesus, we want those who haven't yet trusted him to do so. How do we live out our faith as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in this kind of setting, in a time like this? Well, I think this is what we can learn from these parables. And the first parable basically tells us we don't need to worry because even though the kingdom of heaven begins like a mustard seed, it's going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. I mean, think of where we are. In time, we are now 2,000 years past when Jesus spoke these words. They were first heard by human ears. We are over 6,000 miles away from where Jesus first spoke these words. We are a living fulfillment of the truth of what Jesus said about his kingdom. It's been growing and growing and growing and growing and growing and growing through time across this planet, and it's continuing to do so. I wish, again, I had time to give you stories of how even during the pandemic, this message has been going into places where it's never been before. This message is being embraced in places and by people who have never embraced it before. Jesus is building his church. So we can rest in that. But I want to focus really on the second parable, the parable about the yeast, because I think that's where we are called to engage, in a sense, in what God is doing. Yes, he's the one who does the work, but we can participate in the work. You see, there's more than one kind of yeast in the Bible. There's a godly yeast and a worldly yeast. There's a good yeast and there's a bad yeast. And the kind of yeast we spread will determine the kind of influence that we have in this world. So let's try to understand the different kinds of yeast that we might carry around with us. The first is what we are naturally going to carry with us. It's part of our human nature, and it's not a very pretty picture. Here's the warning Jesus gave his disciples about it. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what was this yeast? Well, it manifests itself in different ways. One of the ways it shows up is a, a spirit of unbelief where the Pharisees and scribes will say, how about another sign, Jesus? How about another miracle? Then we'll believe you. Well, that isn't how this kingdom works. We are not the ones who call the shots. We're not the ones who determine the rules. This is a kingdom of trust in the king of kings. It shows up in another form that's very prominent in the Bible. It has to do with 
hypocrisy. Jesus talks about these groups of leaders, and he said, you know, they do all the right things, but they do it for the wrong reason. They pray to be seen by others. They're generous so that they get a reputation and they get the glory. They fast so that others will think they're really super spiritual and pious. Don't pull that off because it doesn't work in my kingdom. Beware of that kind of leaven. And it can happen so easily. It does happen in the church. And when we're accused of hypocrisy, many times it's, it's correct. How many leaders can you think of in your lifetime who may have preached a message of sexual purity, generosity, humility in service, and it turns out they were involved in sexual immorality, or they were involved in greedy practices, or they were involved in abusive leadership practices. It happens among us, God's people. It happens in our homes. Parents, we can be hypocritical. Our kids see it faster and better than we do. It happens in ministry. It happens in all kinds of things. But you know what? It doesn't just happen in the church. This happens among all people. You look in the arenas of politics, sports, business, education, medicine, you name it, and you're going to see manifestations of this yeast wherever you look where people will say one thing and they will do another, where they will claim I'm here to serve and they're there to serve themselves, where people will make these great claims, yeah, I'm committed, but only as long as it serves my needs. So if that's the kind of yeast that we're spreading around and we will spread around one kind or another, we will not see God's kingdom work done through us. But the yeast of the kingdom is different. I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, which is one of the passages that describes this dynamic that the kingdom of God will produce in us. And so look at Matthew chapter 5 and what we call the Beatitudes. These are the qualities that God's rule in us will produce. And it begins with God's gracious revelation to us that we are spiritually bankrupt. We are poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer God that would gain his favor. There's nothing that we can do to gain his favor. We have nothing of spiritual value that we can offer to God. And it leads to a second characteristic. Where there is godly sorrow, there is mourning over this. And yet in the mourning of this before God, that sense of awareness that my only hope is in God, that's where he meets us and he comforts us. And he creates in us a spirit of humility or meekness as it's uh, translated in some uh, versions of the Bible. But it doesn't stop there. It isn't just about our helplessness. It's about this transformation that God does. He begins to give us a hunger for a different way of life, a way of life that's about what is holy to God, what is just, what is right. And he begins to satisfy that hunger. And as he satisfies it, as we grow in it, that's where some people would say, I see problems. This is where Christians tend to get judgmental, where they become proud, where they become arrogant and condescending. But that isn't the yeast of this kingdom. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. 
You know what Jesus says shows up next after we begin to grow in justice and holiness and righteousness? He says, you become more merciful in this kingdom. You see how much you've needed mercy and how gracious God was to give it. And that's what you become like. And then he talks about purity of heart. This isn't just the outward practices that make us look good. This is something that starts on the inside. It is so real that it begins to change the way we live. And one of the ways it changes us is what he says next. You become peacemakers. We've experienced restoration with God. And we've learned about how to be restored with others. And we want people to experience this. We want them to have this as a part of their experience with God. And then the end comes, the last one. And it's got a kick to it. Here's what it says. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. I mean, do you see the transformation described here? We start spiritually bankrupt. We get to the point where we're starting to hunger and thirst for what honors God. And by the end, we have begun to develop a purity in heart through God's spirit in us that makes us targets for the reaction that Jesus received from other people when he started planting these seeds. But Jesus says, when we grow in this, when these qualities begin to show up more and more, that's when you become the light of the world. That's when you become the salt of the earth. But there are warnings. He says, don't cover up the light. Don't allow the salt to lose its saltiness. And how does that happen? It happens when we start settling for the leaven of this world. So I would ask, where do we find ourselves across that description of transformation? Where are we in that change that the kingdom makes in those who live under its rule? We can slide back. It's not that when we get to some point, we're permanently there. That's not the way this kingdom works. So as we finish up, I want to speak to people who are on sort of those two parts of the spectrum that were part of Matthew's audience. Let me start with those who are followers of Jesus. Because what we see here is an invitation, so to speak. It's an invitation to, to rest in the Lord. That's the first response. God is doing his work. He's building his kingdom. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to stew. When things don't go the way we want, we don't have to think, oh man, what's going on, Lord? Are you aware of what's happening here? Aren't you concerned? Aren't you going to do something about it? God's on his throne. Jesus is building his church so we can rest in him. And I think the second response is live for the Lord. Rest in the Lord, live for the Lord. Surrender to his kingdom. Grow in following Jesus. Don't hold back. Because as we cooperate in this work of transformation, we will see his kingdom work in us and we will see his kingdom work done through us. We'll become that good leaven that he uses to transform our lives, 
our families, our ministries, our communities. He's going to use us. So rest in the Lord and live for the Lord. The other end of the spectrum, these parables, first of all, heed the warning. There is an implicit warning in these parables. There's no stopping this kingdom. It's foolish and it's futile to resist God. So don't do it. Heed the warning. But there's also good news here. And it's respond to the invitation because there is an invitation here. You can begin to experience this. You can become a part of this by turning to God. That's what the Bible means by repentance. Turning to God. That's how Jesus began his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can have that moment right now where you can Put yourself in a position and admit to God, Lord, you alone have what I really need. You alone can offer me forgiveness and a new way of life. And if that's where you are today, I would invite you to take your first step. You can do it after the service, come down for prayer, or you can reach out to the church at efree.org slash connect, and someone will help you. But let me offer a prayer as we finish up and we weigh our own response to what these parables should mean for us. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to look together with all the people who are with us in the room, all the people who are joining us online at these two parables that tell us about your kingdom and how it works. Thank you for sending your son to teach us about your kingdom. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to reflect on what these sounded like to the people who first heard them, to those who received them in writing for the first time. And now for us to have fresh ears, to hear what they say, and tender hearts to respond to what we need to do in order to be a part of this kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for being our king. Thank you for coming and bringing this message. Thank you for opening a way for us to be citizens of this kingdom that will never end. Thank you that you are building your kingdom. We pray that you will build it in us and through us by your power and grace. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.